Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. It's turkey time. Time for the holiday feasting to begin. We're celebrating that most food-centric of days this week on Louisiana Eats. We'll begin with the Crescent City's most beloved food guy, Kevin Belton. Whether you know Kevin from WWL-TV or his wildly popular PBS series, when it comes to good food, Kevin is the dude. He's here to share childhood holiday food memories, and then my old friend and fellow journalist Sarah Rowan is back. Sarah's 2008 book, Gumbo Tales, tells the story of being an outsider. She's originally from Wisconsin who finds her place at our Louisiana table. That involved learning to say, po' boy. Sarah, it's poor boy. Along with adventures with a turducken. I can't say I've shared Sarah's fondness for that iteration of the bird, but trust me, it's a lively and pretty hilarious conversation. And then, Madeline Wright. The Madeline of Spinach Madeline fame is back to tell us the story of how that classic Louisiana Thanksgiving dish came to be. Gobble, gobble, it's turkey time on this week's Louisiana Eats. My name is Kevin Belton, and I am a New Orleanian that grew up with a house full of family for the holidays. Before Kevin Belton became a public television host and chef, he was a youngster growing up on Valance Street in uptown New Orleans. Kevin inherited his passion for food from his mother, Sarah Thomas Belton, whose generosity and hospitality were unparalleled. Sarah's Thanksgivings were the stuff of legends, and young Kevin was taking notes. Whoever came to our house to celebrate the holidays left at the end of the day with their own turkey, their own dressing, their own vegetables, so they wouldn't have to cook during the week. How in the world did she accomplish that? Because I can't imagine the House on Balance had a professional kitchen no it, you know mom was so organized she would prep everything out she would start two days ahead prepping and everything would be lined up in the refrigerator pretty much ready to go and the night before she would slip two turkeys in the oven and underneath them would go like pans of vegetables or dressing the alarm would go off and those would come out they'd go on racks on the table to cool 
something else went in the oven while those turkeys cooked. She'd lay down, the alarm would go off, she'd get up, in the refrigerator those two, those come out, they go to cool, those turkeys come out, they go to cool, two more turkeys go in. She would get everything done about three o'clock, four o'clock, that everything was all done for everyone else. And so she'd go to sleep in about nine o'clock. She'd wake up, make breakfast, and then get the dinner in, in the oven. So we know the turkey, but were there dressings? Were there stuffings? There were oyster was... dressing, the cornbread oyster dressing. Oh my goodness. And you know, that's where I learned that sweet savory. Mom would make a little sweet cornbread and she saute the trinity and season that really, really good and then break up that, that cornbread in it. So you had the seasoning of the onion, celery, green pepper that was seasoned really well. With she'd use white pepper, red pepper, black pepper, salt, paprika, and some herbs. That was seasoned really strong because it was going with bread. And she said that bread is plain, but it had a little sweetness to it. So you get that savory and sweet. And then she'd add a little chicken stock to that, get it nice and moist. She'd put some in the turkeys, and then she'd take what wasn't there, she'd fold the oysters into it, and then bake that. Candied yams, oh, they looked like they were shellacked when they came out. And you know, Poppy, I have tried to make those candied yams, and they never came out, never came out like mine. So I finally gave up. I did them, man. They were good. But it wasn't until about two years ago. I decided, no, I'm going to try it again. Let me, see, let, me, let me try something. And it kind of looked like mom's did. What was the secret? I, I don't know. I'm sure you were doing it on TV, <laughs> so everybody knows I, the secret. You know, I, the only thing I think it was was a, a little sugar on the top. Mm. Because she would, I, I tried to remember if she did milk. But because I, I did it with a little milk in the bottom of the pan, and that didn't wouldn't work. And then I finally cut back on the amount of butter. So I made the layers and I did a little white sugar and brown sugar together with a touch of cinnamon and put a little pats of butter around. And then my top layer, I didn't put anything on, just the sugar. Ah. And that, that finally did it. There was always that melaton. Melaton casserole, the oyster cornbread dressing, macaroni and cheese. And it would always be like green beans, fresh green beans. Not the nasty stuff with the canned stuff. She was making them fresh. No, no, she used fresh green beans. But you know what did come out of the can? What? The petty pois peas. Those came out of the can. Did she make them with a roux? Um... You know, sometimes, sometimes she made them with the root, but a lot of times she would drain them, put a little butter in the pan, saute a little, she'd cut a little onion real, real thin, and just put them, just just enough to warm them up. 
that melaton casserole was it seafood only or did it have ham, ham and, and seafood shrimp. ham and shrimp that's when i learned early as a kid when you went to the to the butcher or the deli and you ordered all you had to say was i need a pound of chassisi shredded <laughs> <laughs> you know it's funny how some things are just called by name yeah you know what's crazy is i was out of town visiting a relative and we went to the grocery store to get some things, and I'm at the deli, and I said, I need a pound of chassisi. And they looked at me like, I'm like, oh, I forgot where I was. <laughs> of course, there was always that pot of gumbo. If you close your eyes, that was the color of her room. <laughs> dark, dark, dark. Yes. Crabs in the shell. That had to go in because it was a different flavor than without. But so the crabs in the shell, andouille sausage, hot sausage, a little bit of smoke. Not too much smoke, but a little smoke sausage. Mm-hmm. Shrimp, crab meat, and right at the very end, oysters. So there's a dark roux, but um, there's no filet and there's no okra? No, she didn't. She didn't. Every once in a while, she might put a little filet at the end, and and it'd be time she'd make an okra gumbo. And when she did okra gumbo, usually it just had shrimp and crab in it. But not for the holidays. For the no, holidays, for the holiday, it, it was that it was everything. that 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 combination. What was dessert, Kevin? Oh, do you remember ambrosia? Of course. I now. This ambrosia didn't have that marshmallow fluff and stuff in it because I've seen it with that sometimes. But she had this huge crystal bowl and she would layer like oranges. She would shred coconut, fresh coconut. Wow. And shred it. So there were oranges. There was, I want to say grapes. There were strawberries. There was cherries. Because I can remember the colors of it. Pineapple? Pineapple, yeah. There Out was, the can? There was, no, she cut it pineapple fresh. fresh. Yeah, yeah. So there was always that bowl of ambrosia. But what's important was the reason it was fresh shredded coconut, because she would drain the coconuts, bake them in the oven for a little bit, and crack them, and she would shred coconut for coconut cake. What a lot of hard work. And so the coconut cake was dessert too? Yeah. What? We had ambrosia was there. Uh-huh. The ambrosia, you know what the ambrosia turned out to be? What? The ambrosia turned out to be almost like a palate cleanser. <laughs> <laughs> and then because comes the coconut I remember, cake. I can't remember who did this, but a couple of relatives, they'd have gumbo, but then they'd have a little ambrosia <laughs> in between. Then they'd go for dinner. But there was always coconut cake. There was always chocolate cake. That yellow cake I was telling you about with yes. that homemade chocolate icing. And there was usually a pie, usually a sweet potato pie. So was the menu same at Christmas and Thanksgiving? Pretty much, yeah. Usually they were the same. We'd eat about, uh, where was it? Holidays around 1 o'clock, 1, 2 o'clock. And how many people would be at the table? You know, it's one of those things, whoever came over. Yeah. <laughs> It was just a great you know, open door, and there was always a place was, for everyone. It was always, yeah, exactly. So whether it was her sister, 
and 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 husband and my cousins, uh, my dad's brother would come over. My dad's sister would come over. So you had all these, and everybody may not show up at the same time. A lot of times folks did, but, you know, folks have other houses and families. It was an open house, whether it was family, friends, whoever. You could always come over, get something to eat, have a meal. There was always, and, you know, the dining room had the buffet and the server and and there was a bar, the cart that had all the alcohol in it. And my parents didn't drink. So it was all about entertaining. I think my mom enjoyed watching people eat because she wouldn't eat. She would watch everybody eat and enjoyed watching everybody take what she prepared home with them. That was Kevin Belton with holiday memories of his mother, Sarah Thomas Belton. Your traditional Thanksgiving dinner include that monstrous bird known as turducken? Coming up next, we're joined by Sarah Rowan, a courageous cook who's actually attempted to make Paul Prudhomme's turducken in her home kitchen. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Do your red beans cook up so creamy because they're cooked in Grandma's bean pot? Or is it her wooden spoon that makes them so special? Camellia Brand wants to honor your family's culinary keepsakes during their upcoming centennial. Share your treasures by emailing images and stories to me at poppy at poppytooker.com and we'll make sure you're part of the celebration. Wisconsin native Sarah Rowan is the author of Gumbo Tales, Finding My Place at the New Orleans Table, a book that follows Sarah's immersion into New Orleans culture through her discovery of the city's food traditions. After Chef Paul Prudhomme patented the turducken, she found herself preparing the dish 
and lived to tell the tale. Here, she explains the process behind creating this Thanksgiving monstrosity. Well, the first time I tasted a turducken, I bought a portion of it from K. Paul's. One year, I waited. I had a. I was taking a flight home to Wisconsin for Thanksgiving, where I'm from. But I really wanted to taste his turducken, and so I waited in line. Like I got in line. There was a long line actually for dinner, um, and I got in line probably an hour before they opened the doors, and I got my turducken to go, and I just jetted to the airport and ended up eating that first taste of turducken in the airport um, right before I boarded. And I have to say, it is not an attractive food. (laughs) But when you think about it, Thanksgiving isn't such an attractive meal. I mean, the turkey's gorgeous when you take it out of the oven, but once you get everything on your plate you know, traditional American Thanksgiving or traditional even New Orleans Thanksgiving, it's pretty brown. It's pretty monotone, except for the cranberry sauce. Um, (laughs) And this was definitely many shades of brown. It was very brown, but I have to say it's very tasty, especially Paul Prudhomme's version. Um, When I made it at home, you know, I followed his recipe to the letter, so I take no credit for how delicious it was. Um, But there are, um, just like, you know, pretty much any recipe of his that you'll follow. I also learned how to make gumbo from his cookbook. And there's just a million flavors going on at once, and as you're making it, you're not quite sure how it's going to work out, and it all feels very heavy-handed. And scary, especially, you know, for a girl from Wisconsin who grew up maybe having salt in her food. Um, (laughs) And in the end, his food tastes round and full and beautiful. And that's what the traducan is like, I have to say. In Paul Prudhomme's The Prudhomme Family Cookbook, which I brought as a prop. Which was his second book. Well, I think that's true. Yeah, Paul Prudhomme's Louisiana Kitchen was maybe his first. This is the one with the turducken recipe in it. Okay. It's 14 pages long. And his turducken is much more complex and I think consequently better tasting than the turduckens that you can buy in a store. Um, But his turducken involves a chicken stuffed with oyster dressing and then put inside a duck that has been stuffed with cornbread dressing, put inside a turkey that has been stuffed with andouille dressing. Sew it all up, uh, roast it for around 12 hours, 12 to 13 hours. Let it rest for at least an hour and serve it with an eggplant sweet potato gravy. (laughs) Sarah, 14 pages long. Takes a while just to read that recipe. The the birds themselves, partially deboned, deboned? Deboned except for like a little tip of the, um, well, except for the wings and like a little tip of the leg bones, he suggests. When I, the first, I've made a turducken, I've made his turducken twice. The first time I made it, I asked the butcher to debone my birds. And the butcher did that except for the leg bones which I didn't realize until I got to the stage of stuffing the birds and roasting the entire turducken. And it took me, it sent me into a complete panic because, I mean, if the roasting takes 12 hours and the resting takes at least one, you're already looking at 
Pulling an all-nighter. Half of a day. Yeah, pulling an all-nighter <laughs> or waking up really early. And I had in my notes that I'd overslept that day. And so that when I saw that I had to, like, debone parts of the birds, um, I had a panic. And I did it, not very gracefully. Um, in Paul Perdome's cookbook, he gives really lengthy instructions for deboning the birds yourself. When I talked to him, he conceded that it's maybe better to have a professional do it. Because one little slip of the knife and you'll have a hole that has eventually has stuffing like oozing out of it during the roasting. Now, what about the stuffings? Kind of break it down for us. What was the order of things? Because if, if I was approaching it, I would think probably you make the stuffings in advance. So I like to say to make a turducken at the last minute, you start three days ahead of time. Okay. I mean, even in New Orleans, shopping in New Orleans, I had to go to three different grocery stores to get every ingredient. I'm not sure if this is exact, but you make something like 15 pounds of stuffing because he also likes you to have a little bit extra to roast and have on the table. (laughs) Yeah. So making the stuffings alone, is you should do that. Take a day just to do that. The stuffings need to be cooled before you stuff the birds. And so maybe the next day or the next night, depending on whether you want to let the turducken roast as you sleep or um, during the day, that's a day in itself. Um, And you do need to, you don't need to baste a turducken, but um, it lets off so much grease, especially from the duck inside, that you can't just go to, like, you can't go to sleep and forget about it for 12 to 13 hours. You need to set your alarm every few hours to get some of the, um, the duck, duck fat, fat <laughs> out of the roasting pan. Oh, gosh. I was ex- it's exhausting. It's exhausting. <laughs> As if Thanksgiving can't be exhausting enough. How many people does that monster feed? A lot. I mean, honestly... There are only maybe a dozen slices that get a cross-section of everything, of all three birds and all three stuffings. There are only maybe a dozen perfect slices. But, I mean, you, I mean, how many people could you feed? I can't even answer that because I, way more than I fed. I mean, you could probably feed 20 to 30 people. When you think about making a turducken again, what, what would it take for you to get into that three-day experience? Poppy, I think you could convince me to make one <laughs> because I would love to convert you and to prove that it's possible to love a turducken. Um, but I'm not I'm not looking forward to making a third turducken. Let's put it that way. Okay, I'll make a deal. If I ever get the compulsion, we'll cook it side by side. How about that? That sounds great. An extra pair of hands would help with the 15 pounds of stuffing. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. Thanks so much for talking turkey with us, turducken style on Louisiana Eats. Thank you, Poppy. Sarah Rowan, author of Gumbo Tales, Finding My Place at the New Orleans Table. We spoke with her about her turducken exploits back in 2015. Much to all their chagrin, Sarah, her husband Matt, and their son Tebow all relocated to San Luis Obispo several years ago due to Matt's work. But they come back to visit New Orleans every chance they get. And Sarah is still cooking a mean gumbo with the ingredients she finds now in California. In fact, our last conversation was about gumbo. 
Sarah was having a very unusual experience with some filet powder and called for advice. Sarah, everybody knows you can only get real filet powder from Louisiana. I'm Poppy Tooker, and no matter where she makes it, Sarah Rowan's gumbo makes for some good Louisiana eats. Odds are good that your Louisiana Thanksgiving table will include spinach madeleine. This creamy, slightly spicy side dish became popular after the recipe appeared for the first time in the first edition of River Roads Recipes. This best-selling community cookbook was originally published by the Baton Rouge Junior League in 1959. To hear the story of how it was created, we went straight to the source and spoke with its originator, Madeline Wright, at her St. Francisville home. Well, it was kind of by accident, actually. I was serving my two-table bridge club for lunch, and I made a cream spinach, and I had this jalapeno cheese I had bought and didn't know what to do with it. I think it had first come on the market. It must have been about 1956. And I just wanted to use it for something, so just on a fluke, I decided to put it in the cream spinach. And something wonderful happened. My friends raved about it at first, and then I served it to a supper club, and the men liked it. And just at that time, the Junior League decided to publish a cookbook, and we were required to turn in three recipes. So spinach was the only thing that I had really created. I didn't consider myself a fine cook. I knew enough to know that if you make a cream sauce and you put cheese in it, it becomes all gratin. So that gave me the courage to put the jalapeno cheese into the cream spinach. <laughs> and then you just named it for yourself? Well, actually, I did. I'm, I'm, I've always been a little bit embarrassed over that. <clears throat> but um, I have a philosophy that a name for a dish is very important. And they all have a certain rhythm to the title. Look at shrimp remoulade, oysters Rockefeller, Caesar salad, steak Diane. They all have this little rhythm to them. But anyway, um, I was looking for a name for my spinach and came across a recipe in a French cookbook that I have for a Ville Madeleine. Yeah. So I said to myself, why not to spinach, Madeleine? <laughs> <laughs> and the rest is history, huh? That's right. <laughs> so when did you first discover you had such a winner on your hands? Well, only when people started telling me that. And the book sales picked up, and um, there have been people who said that the recipe is what sells the book. I don't believe that because we had a very active committee of junior league members who, in the beginning, took their cookbook samples with them everywhere they traveled and introduced them to the hotel gift counter or whatever, and uh, they promoted the book very faithfully. <laughs> well, one, one of the ingredients listed is spinach liquor. Maybe you should explain what that is. Well, we've had a lot of fun with that, too. 
the liquor uh, that the vegetables are cooked in is an old-fashioned Southern name. And um, I put that in, and I think I called it vegetable liquor. It was just the juice off of the spinach, which was to go in the into the white sauce. And um, we've had a lot of fun because most of the young people don't don't know what that means. They don't associate liquor with vegetables. Uh, actually, I have a friend whose daughter was off at school. Actually, she was at the University of Arkansas. And she wanted to make the spinach madeleine, so she went to the liquor store to get this vegetable liquor. And the clerk there said, "Well, he didn't have any any spinach liquor, but that he he'd recommend she use bourbon because it was made out of corn." <laughs> <laughs> okay, here comes the tough question now. What do you do now that Kraft has discontinued making that essential spinach madeleine ingredient, jalapeno cheese? Well, I'm using that new one. Somebody up in Minnesota, I believe it is, a company called Parker Company, has started making a jalapeno cheese, and they have packaged it kind of like the original Kraft product, which was a little roll of cheese about five or six inches long, Mm -hmm. and Parker Company is making this one similar to that. It doesn't produce exactly the same results as the Kraft product did. Oh, dear. This is the best substitute that I have found. And all the grocery stores in this area at least stock that now. There is an article online that claims that the dish came from the Green Springs Inn by a woman named Madeline Neville. Well, that that is I. You see, I've had three husbands. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm in the River Road. There's Madeline. Uh, I think I'm Mrs. William Raymond in that book. But we didn't. We weren't progressive enough to use the woman's name. We were always Mrs. Somebody rather. But then um, I married this Texas Aggie whose name was Neville. And when we moved over here, I opened a bed and breakfast. I had divorced that first husband, as I told you, (laughs) and found myself in a jam. But uh, I opened a bed and breakfast here, and I named it Green Springs Inn. So I did serve it some, but I truthfully got tired of seeing that on the breakfast plate every morning. (laughs) (laughs) That will happen. Well, Mrs. Wright, I want to thank you so much for talking with us on Louisiana Eats, and I want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving. Well, thank you very much, and the same to you and all the listeners. That was Madeline Wright of St. Francisville, Louisiana, creator of Spinach Madeline, speaking with us back in 2011. Madeline Wright passed away at home in St. Francisville on August 4, 2020, at the age of 91. But her famous dish, Spinach Madeline, will forever be a Louisiana holiday classic.
When Kraft Foods discontinued the jalapeno cheese roll that inspired Madeline Wright's original spinach Madeline, it caused great panic among Louisiana spinach Madeline lovers. There would simply be no Thanksgiving without spinach Madeline on the dinner table. Never fear. There's a way to recreate the original by using fresh chopped jalapenos, which frankly sounds better to me anyway. That said, there's no way to get around incorporating that favorite American processed food, Velveeta. To make spinach madeleine, first cook a couple of packages of frozen chopped spinach. Drain the spinach, but hang on to that cooking liquid. You'll need it later in the recipe. Then, you make a roux by cooking flour and butter together until the raw flour taste disappears. You're not browning the roux. This is a classic French blonde roux, which takes about three or four minutes to make. Add the onion and cook it until it softens. Then whisk in about a half cup of the spinach cooking liquid, whisking until it's all smooth. Add the celery and garlic salt, the jalapeno peppers, and the cubed Velveeta cheese. Keep stirring until the cheese melts, then stir in the spinach. Season with salt, red pepper, and Worcestershire sauce and serve right away or put it in a buttered casserole dish topped with buttered breadcrumbs. Then you can keep it overnight in the fridge or even freeze it for later use. Spinach madeleine is good on crackers and fabulous in a stuffed baked tomato. I'm Poppy Tooker. And spinach madeleine is real Louisiana Eats. Spinach has vitamin A, B, and D. But spinach never appealed to me. But one day while having dinner with a guy, I decided to give it a try. Like it the first time, it was so new to me. What's the best way to roast a turkey? We'll answer that question when we come right back. Stay tuned. I used to run away from the stuff, but now somehow I can't get enough. I did like it the first time. Oh, how it grew on me. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry. Their new stuffing mix brings the flavor to your holiday table, available in herbal or cornbread. And their brown gravy and marinade have your turkey covered. Louisiana Fish Fry because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, located 40 minutes north of New Orleans French Quarter along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain, the delicious Tammany taste culinary scene and abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Fall on Louisiana's North Shore brings outdoor festivals and lots of holiday events. Find details on upcoming events, 
itinerary suggestions, and more at louisiananorthshore.com. This week's culinary quiz question brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What's the best way to roast a turkey? It's not hard, but it does take time. Two to three days before Thanksgiving, combine two tablespoons of salt with a teaspoon of pepper. Rub those seasonings all over your bird, starting with the back, sprinkling a bit inside of the cavity, then flip it over and finish with the breast and legs. Then put your turkey on a wire rack set over a rimmed baking sheet and refrigerate it uncovered for up to a couple of days. Yes, uncovered. One of the secrets to a really good bird is getting it very dry before the roasting process begins. When it's time for cooking, let the turkey sit out on your counter for about two hours while you preheat the oven to 450 degrees. Transfer the turkey to a roasting pan and pour one and a half cups of turkey or chicken stock into the pan. Slide the bird into the oven and lower the heat to 350 degrees. About one and a quarter hours into the roasting process, Rotate the pan in the oven and let it continue to roast for another two and a half to three hours. You'll know your turkey's done when the juices run almost clear from the thigh with just a touch of pinkness and your instant read thermometer registers 170 degrees. Finally, put your bird in a warm spot in the kitchen and let it rest for at least 30 minutes before the carving begins. I'm Poppy Tooker. And my roasted turkey makes for some good Thanksgiving Louisiana Eats. Although obsessed with baking since she was a little girl, Pie became a passion for Seattle's Kate McDermott in 2005. That's when she began a two-year exploration of pie crust. Since then, Kate's been a go-to authority on the craft of pie making. Known as the Piecaiatrist, Kate shares her expertise in workshops, her books, and website. Kate joined us in the studio to help demystify the pie. There's nothing that is hard about pie. In fact, those words, easy as pie, they really do have some truth in them. I think the biggest thing is just to believe that you can do it, not to worry about a perfect outcome, because in those little places where you have a little tear here in the crust or you have a little... Um, it didn't look quite like the pictures in the book. You have beauty and perfection right there in that pie. And good taste, too, I imagine. And memories. <laughs> well, start us off from scratch. How do you make a pie? I'd love to tell you that. First thing I do is I want to make sure that all my ingredients are chilled as many as possible. So I am putting my flour in the freezer. I'm keeping my fats well chilled. My bowl comes out of the freezer too. 
Then I will, I have a very, very simple recipe. It's got four ingredients for the dough. There's flour, two and a half cups. There's salt, a half a teaspoon. There's the fats. I use leaf lard, eight tablespoons of that, and eight tablespoons of butter, and enough water to put it all together. Now, when I'm working with those fats and moving them into the flour, I'm working very, very quickly. I can do this either with my hands and just sort of smush that fat right into the flour until it looks like it's sort of coated with cracker crumbs, peas, almonds, and maybe a small walnut meat or pecan if you like that. Then I will uh, get the water in until it's mixed enough to hold together without being sticky. And when I then I pull it into a a ball that's about the softball size, you kind of feel you you know you're there if you can feel like you're going to pat a baby's bottom. <laughs> well, tell me, what is leaf lard? Leaf lard is the rendered fat from around the pig's kidneys. For generations, it is what pie makers have used for the flakiest crusts around. Where do you get leaf lard from? I have several places that I get it. I'm using so much leaf lard in my classes monthly. I go through 50 pounds of leaf lard in a month. Wow. Yeah, I'm teaching a lot. <laughs> so I get it from a place in Pennsylvania, Dietrich's Meats and Country Store, and you'll love where they're in, Crumbsville, Pennsylvania. <laughs> well, that's perfect for pie making. What do you do if the pie doesn't work out? Uh-huh. That's happened to every pie maker around. First thing, you don't worry about it. And then you get out your lasagna pan, and you turn that pie with its beautiful ingredients into the pan, move those pie ingredients around that's baked, and it turns into the best crumble you've ever had. That's a perfect solution. What do you do if your guests are gluten-free? Ah, yes. Gluten-free is a big thing now, and I myself try not to eat too much gluten, but uh, for those who can't eat it at all, you can make a gluten-free pie that's pretty darn good. Uh, I use seven different flours, and then I just go ahead and pretty much make my dough as usual. Uh, there's a couple little tricks to it. Instead of making my dough first and chilling it, and then making my filling and then rolling out, I put my filling together first, then immediately go on to making my gluten-free dough and construct the pie and then chill it. Ah. What are those flours? I use uh, several different rice flours. I use potato starch, tapioca flour, or tapioca starch. Those are just a few of the ones that I use in there. Speaking of tapioca starch, this is something else that I really don't have any experience with. And you and I shopped for pie ingredients together and I have to admit, I was a little shocked when I saw the famous pie maker add a little red box of something that said instant on it really big to the shopping cart. What was that, Kate? Well, that was a pie maker's best friend. That was quick cooking tapioca. When I have fillings, I call them the juicy fruit fillings. These would be rhubarb pie cherries, berries, and frozen fruits. Those can get very, very wet inside of your pie. So I like to use quick cooking tapioca 
which really sort of snugs things up. I don't want to standing up like a little soldier at the end because I like to have a certain amount of ooze in my filling, but I don't want to have fruit soup. So I will put in uh, many times some flour, a third of a cup, a quarter cup of flour, and then follow that with anywhere between a half a teaspoon to a tablespoon and a half of quick cooking tapioca. Now, there is another secret that you'll need to know when you're using quick cooking tapioca, and that is you have to get the temperature high enough for the tapioca to do its work. So if you don't see enough bubbling at the end of your bake time, and I'm not talking about rapid bubble, I'm talking about some steady, even bubbling, then you can go ahead and kick your oven up for the last five minutes, maybe to 425, maybe to 440, until you see that, and then you're good to go. Some pies are sort of mounded, and some pies are flat. What's the deal with that? There are two fruits that I will mound a pie with. That will be apple and pear, and those I just mound something fierce. It's not unusual for me to have a six and a half inch tall apple pie or pear pie. They will slump down in the cooking and their their juice stays in pretty well if you've got enough thickener in there. But with those juicy fruit pies, I like to have them a little flatter. I would like to have them about a half an inch below the rim so we don't have any disasters. Now, I have to ask you, what's your favorite pie? Well, my favorite pie is always the one that I'm making. But <laughs> if I if I had only one last pie to make, it would be a peach pie. I think that there's nothing nothing finer than a good peach pie. And I love the Cal Red or O. Henry peaches that Frog Hollow Farms grows in California. There's nothing like those peaches. Well, someday I'm going to have to introduce you to a Louisiana Rustin peach. And then we might change your mind just I'm, a little I'm ready. Bit. Anytime. Do you have a least favorite? Yes. What's that? I call it the clean the oven pie. That's the one that I think we've all had experience with at some time or the other where you put that filling up too high in the pie and it spills over into your oven. And then you have the smoke alarm going off and the oven is just, you don't want one of those. We've all had them. Well, Kate, thank you so much for bringing all this pie-making knowledge into the studio here at Louisiana Eats. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Poppy, and be happy and make pie. Renowned pie maker, Kate McDermott. If you're looking for more pie wisdom from the Piecaiatrist, check out Kate's James Beard-nominated book, The Art of the Pie. we go, I just want to say thank you for listening. This is our 13th Thanksgiving here at Louisiana Eats, and I've loved every minute of it. You have all given me a platform I'm so very grateful for, and I hope to continue to honor the wonderful folks of Louisiana and all the food people everywhere as long 
as you all allow. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. And now, let's eat! That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of Louisiana Eats is available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. And don't forget to rate us on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta, handcrafted in Louisiana just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris, producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.